I'm Sam from Tongue. And I'm Becky from Tongue. And this is our Dead Club podcast. Dead Club is a project um, by which we as a band have explored our cultures and other cultures' relationships to death and dying. Um, we did quite a big period of research, and this is a really new way of working for us. We did the research, interviewed some fantastic people, and then made the album. Uh, Tongue as a band, we've been going for about 15 years making music together and we are Becky, myself, Mike, Ashley, Martin and Phil. We're saying probably that we started this project back in 2018, so long before um, Covid-19 became a thing um, and actually as a result Sam and I are recording this script on Zoom which um, it's kind of become commonplace with a lot of podcasts but that's why it might sound a bit wonky but then we are a bit wonky aren't we Sam as a band certainly are yeah (laughs) um so this episode is an interview with Alan de Botton um and Alan is a uh he's a philosopher and writer who writes about and discusses contemporary subjects in relation to and philosophy's relationship to everyday life and he set up something called the School of Life, which has become a global organisation um, to help people lead more fulfilled lives. My conversation with Alan um, influenced another kind of um, theme or tone, really, to the lyrics and that. His, his School of Life stuff is very, um, it's very honest about life and about the fact that life is sometimes difficult and we really have to accept that fact if we're going live to a, live a good life. And so it became important to me when I was writing the lyrics that they they reflected that fact that life life is challenging at times and death especially so. So here's what happened when Sam met Alan. I'm here with Alan de Botan in his house in North London and I'm here to speak to him for our new project about death and our culture's relationship to death. Hi Alan. Hello. I... I wanted to speak to you because I've been watching and listening to a lot of your School of Life talks lately. Um, and in fact, let me give you a bit of background. So I would describe myself as a, a very highly sensitive person. And, and over the last sort of 20 years, I've really supported myself um, by doing quite a lot of therapy, lots of exercise, eating well, and mm-hmm. generally kind of working on my well-being. And there's two sides to that. You know, I'm a very, I, I really soak up the wonder of life. And it's, you know, I, I think I really appreciate the beauty of life. But I also I, I do battle a bit with anxiety and, and low mood. And uh, so all of those things have been great. But then 19 months ago, I had a daughter who's wonderful and uh, has cracked me open emotionally in all the best ways uh, and some quite challenging ways. Uh, but I don't really have time for all those sort of well-being things anymore. But what I do have most days is half an hour to 45 minutes doing the washing up in our kitchen. And I can watch YouTube talks or listen to podcasts. And I found myself often gravitating towards the School of Life. I mean, could you just tell us a little bit about what the School of Life is? So it's an organisation broadly devoted to 
emotional fulfillment, um, which means kind of handling all the emotional stuff that tends to drag us down. Loneliness, shame, anxiety, um, malfunctioning relationships, uh, malfunctioning um, connections with our families, our friends, our working environments, our colleagues. Um, all of this stuff, you know, drags us down, destroys our, our moods. And... Um, ruins our lives and, and that's the stuff that we get up in the morning to try and make an intervention around and our interventions um, uh, operate down a number of channels so we make little films we write books uh, we teach classes we run conferences we're always looking for kind of how do you teach people how do you touch people uh, we offer a psychotherapy service and who knows in the future we might make music we might run a hotel we might um, decide to run a school for children or you know whatever it is we're, we're, we're relatively platform neutral but we're um, flexible you know we're, we're, we're well defined in what we're trying to do we're always trying to help people to sort of somehow navigate the very painful business of being alive um, with as little distress as possible. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I, I love the idea of that you've got your sort of fingers in all those different pies. Um, I mean, for me personally, it's mainly at the moment, as I say, just been the talks, but I love, they're very practical. Mm. They seem very realistic. Mm. And I get a, quite a strong sense that you kind of know what you're talking about you know yeah. it feels like you've read the works of all the great philosophers and artists and you know even you know the, the works of the great musicians who who you know dealt with the big issues of life and and yeah. I feel like um as someone who can sometimes be attracted to the more esoteric mm. side of life I feel like sometimes I need a bit of grounding when I'm searching yeah. for a, a source of comfort and I think your talks provide that yeah. now I I haven't actually been what hadn't actually been watching the talks about death mm. until this project came along mm. and I thought oh wow I'd be I'd really love to know what Alain de Breton mm. has to say about this mm. but but since since I knew that it, I would mm. be able to speak to you I, mm. I searched some out and there, mm. there are some great ones mm. there was one talk in particular um, which is called reasons to remember death mm. and I think the sort of main theme of that talk it's quite a short talk I think mm. it's only about five minutes long it, but it's why is it useful to think about death mm. I wonder if you could just speak about that a little bit so our death and the death of our loved ones is a deeply implausible concept and we're you know a lot of this has got to do with our childhoods the way that we grow up um, we arrive in the world and we see people around us and we think they've been around all the time and um, early indications tend to be that they are around all the time because they, they tend to sort of stick around for a long, long while. You know, you might be in your 50s, 60s for your parents die. So most of your life, the people who were there when you were tiny, when you didn't exist, are still there. So there's an awful lot of continuity for a long time. Um, you know, you, you, you might be in your 60s before anyone close to you dies. Um, now, you know, that's a look good position a lucky position to be in but it's you know nowadays in in the developed world not an unfamiliar position and uh, this is very reassuring but on the other hand what it tends to do is to make the subject of death disappear from people's day-to-day -day experiences for many many decades and in the process certain things lose their importance their rightful importance so traditionally religions have recognized that keeping death in mind helps in certain ways to keep life focused. That there's a way in which um, knowledge of the kind of finitude of everything um, does certain things that 
could be quite productive. So for example, we waste a lot of time. Knowing that time is precious um, helps us to focus our efforts. Um, knowing that we don't have an infinity of days in which to activate our deepest hopes um, can lend us the kind of courage to take these hopes more seriously. Um, so a typical thing is, you know, somebody has a brush with death and realizes my relationship's not good enough. It would be fine if I could live to be 700 years old. But given the fact that I might only have a few more decades, this is not good enough. Or, you know, my mother dies and then I think, well, given what happened to her, given the fact that death has moved from an abstract thought, oh yes, we die, um, to a living reality, my job's not good enough. Or whatever. So it can help us to, um, to bring things into focus. And I should say, you know, a big theme that emerges here is um, we all know, you know, little kids know that they die, um, but there's a real difference between intellectual knowledge and emotional knowledge. Mm. And I don't think that children, when people say things like, children are really good at understanding death, they're really, they're really wise philosophers, because they, they, they approach death with some of the um, sage-like quality of you know, Socrates or Seneca or something. And I go, mm, I'm not sure. I think they don't understand it. Uh, they don't understand the full tragedy, poignancy, regret that accompanies death um, in the same way that, you know, because they haven't got this sort of emotional repertoire. Children don't find childhood sweet, for example. Why don't they find their own childhood sweet? Because they don't know enough about pain. It's only in the context of knowing about pain that the innocence of childhood, the playfulness of childhood, becomes not just nice, but really important and kind of significant. Um, children don't have that. They don't enough, have enough background normally. Um, and that explains why I think you get this sort of slight pseudo-reconciliation with mm. death. I don't think it's genuine. Um, because I think, I think death is an appalling event to which there is ultimately no uh, calm and reconciled response. You see, I think we're sometimes in the danger of thinking that a good response to death is to not mind it. That that, that would be the wisest thing to do, to not mind it. Um, I just want to put on the table another philosophy, that actually the wisest response is to rail against it, to be unreconciled to it, to be furious and sad and destroyed by it, um, because it is an act demands that sort of behavior. That behavior may not be optimal, but, but, but nor is death optimal. So it's an appropriate response to an appalling event. Um, and I think that there is, uh, in our culture, a, n a notion of um, so-and-so doing really well. They've been bereaved, but they're doing really well. And doing really well means uh, not ranting and railing and being destroyed, but you know, being sort of calm, productive member of society. And I don't know whether that's True. Matthew Paris wrote a wonderful essay about the death of his father. I don't know if you come across it, but no. in it he says that uh, his father had been dead 10 years and people uh, came up to him and said, you know, you must be over your father's death now. And he said, you know, there's no such thing as getting over a death. Mm. Um, maybe that's the greatest wisdom, that you don't get over it. Why should you? Mm. Why? So I think, I think there's, we, we've got to be really careful between saying... Um, We've got to think death, about death more, yes. We've got to you know, keep it a death-aware society, absolutely. But do we need a society that responds with so-called wisdom and so-called maturity? We should just drill into those words. What is a wise approach to death? What is a mature approach to death? And it might be very compatible with hitting the wall and rending your clothes and being utterly, utterly unreconciled and furious and torn apart by what's happened. 
Yeah, I, I really relate to everything you said just then. And, and partly I relate because I feel like within my, just within myself, I have this bit of myself that's very rational. I really believe in objective truth or, or striving for objective mm. truth as much as possible. Um, and then I have this other bit of myself that kind of, it's sort of drawn towards a spiritual kind of perspective on life and this idea that there's an overarching meaning to everything. And, and I find both of them, if I'm not careful, can mm. act as a sort of escape from facing the reality mm. of, of things. So mm. I think that's a really interesting subject. And I, even just since I've just spoken to a couple of people already, mm. I, I find myself veering all over the place mm. in, how, in how I feel mm. in relation to death emotionally. Mm. Uh, you, you wrote a book called Religion for Atheists. Mm. I wonder how that relates to that because it, uh, is there a way of drawing on you know, both the idea that things happen in a very kind of, um, things are the way they are. It's, we look at things from a scientific viewpoint mm. and we must accept it like that. And seeing meaning in life. Is there sort of middle ground that mm. can draw on both? Mm. And is that what you're talking about when you say, you know, it is what it is. It's a deeply mm. painful mm. part of life. That I mean, I think, I think the, um, you know, the modern world is, is, um, has sort of hovering in the wings um, deep despair and deep um, uh, sort of unanchored uh, anxious relationship to the idea of being human because we know enough from science but also space exploration you know you're sitting you're standing on the surface of mars we probably will be standing on the surface of mars within a decade or 20 years right a human will stand on the surface of mars and look back at the earth and it's a little dot in the sky and um everything that happens uh, in our lives is of such stunning cosmic insignificance simultaneously of such stunning personal significance that we've got to constantly juggle these two alternatives our complete insignificance and our sense of our deserved significance religion did a well christianity did a rather clever slate of hand it it said that the most so-called insignificant life has an assured place in a grand cosmic scheme it gave to the individual sorrows, concerns, regrets, aspirations, a kind of, it put those within a wonderfully dignified and ambitious sort of theological framework. And it meant that, you know, even though you were just you and, you know, you might have only lived a few years, etc., you're part of the most glorious story in the universe um, about God's design for all human beings. Um, if you don't believe that, and I imagine that none of your listeners do, I don't, probably you don't, um, you know, what do you have left? You, from a biological point of view, you know, we are bits of, you know, strange biological matter spinning on a, on, on a rock in, in, a, in a tiny corner of the universe. There is no purpose that we can identify um, or, or that we would even see as bringing us solace. I mean if the point of life is merely to cling to life. Um, that's true, but not very dignified. And I think that's, that's sometimes what happens when you look at a David Attenborough programme without sentimental lens. Sometimes people think, oh, it's Sunday night, I'm just going to sit down with a good David Attenborough programme. He's a lovely fatherly figure, grandfatherly figure. And the BBC, bless them. They make, you know. Actually, what David Attenborough is showing is an utter ruthlessness and meaninglessness of nature as it unfolds. It's just animals just slaughtering each other in order to eat each other, in order to survive for an ultimate meaning 
that is never explained. God knows why. Their so-called beauty isn't beauty. It's just a survival strategy. There's, there's no purpose. There's no higher thing, etc. Now, we humans um, are equipped with brains that for various sort of weird evolutionary reasons means we've got spare capacity to not just act and not just feed ourselves and not just reproduce, but stand back and ask ourselves these higher order questions. I think these are, it's a freak evolutionary byproduct. Um, and it, it, it enables us to ask questions to which we now know outside of religion, there are no good answers. Why are we here? What's the point of suffering, etc. There are no good answers. Um, and, um, I think we, you know, the experience of being a modern human being is is one where the absurd, we're always on the verge of teetering on the absurd. It's like, at a certain level, you know, what are you doing today? Oh, today I'm going to work. Um, why are you going to work? Oh, I've got to feed my family. Uh, why have you got to feed your family? And as, as you push the questions, the things start to get weirder and the questions start to get harder to answer. Why are you feeding family? I don't know, because I, I want them to live. Okay, why do you want them to live? Oh, so that they can have a nice life. Um, why do you want them to have a nice life? Uh, because life is nice. Are you having a good time? Mm, not really. You know, qu quite quickly, you think, why are we here? What's Oxford Street for? Why did we invent this thing called Oxford Street? Um, what's, what's the television for? What's, why are we flying from one place to another? You, you, you can be struck by meaninglessness. And this is what the existential philosophers, so mid-century, 20th, uh, uh, mid-century philosophers, were sort of basing their work on. There's insight when everything starts to come seem absurd. Mm. Why are we here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Why don't you just kill yourself? Mm. I mean, what, what's the point? And um, the answers, you know, Camus, who's you know, a great thinker in this sort of area, I mean, at the end of the day, his... His consolations, his reasons to be alive included things like the summer in Algeria, the summer in Algiers, the beach, um, the sensuality of dancing, um, you know, um, sex, you know, the, the sort of sensory pleasures, but, but a, a, an overarching philosophy. I mean, he saw us as you know, Sisyphus climbing up his mountain um, and he didn't really know why. He couldn't come up with an answer. No one has. There is no answer. So um, this is just the sort of modern human condition. The good thing, the good thing about the brain and its functioning is that we are remarkably able to live day to day and keep those questions at bay. So um, we're able to narrow our horizons, not ask ourselves what's happening in the long term and just keep plugging away. And, and so we have all of us existential moods, often on a Sunday, often in the evening, but, but we kind of bracket them and they, we, we have this miraculous ability to kind of... Um, not, not despair collectively, to sort of keep going, to keep thinking this sort of wider point. Keep, you know, I don't know, it's, it's, it's both the most stupid thing about us and the most glorious thing. It, I've found, as I've been exploring this subject in the last few weeks, I sometimes when I really embrace the idea of meaninglessness, mm. I actually feel really comforted. Mm. I almost feel excited. It's, yeah. a strange, it's a strange feeling. It's kind of, wow. If this means nothing, mm. then this moment really means something. Does that make sense? Yes. It's a strange kind yes. of feeling. It's sort yes. of the meaningless almost is yes. giving, or is that is that just my sort of inherent desire to paint everything in a sort of good story? Is that my, I, I want I mean, to create a happy, happy no, I mean, ending to the story? Or? There's logical reasons. I mean, a lot of the reason why life is drained of joy and, and, and you know, um, satisfaction um, are some factors that are linked to taking it too seriously. So, you know, if you um, 
if you think that we're immortal, every moment, um, you know, it's connected up to a sort of wider development of the personality that everything becomes extremely consequential. If you think, look, we may be killed any moment. Um, so suddenly the narrow so time horizon becomes narrower and then everything becomes in a way more intense, more joyful, the, the less, there's less fear. Oddly, if you, if you sort of embrace um, the kind of grimness of things and the sort of basic, you know, darkness of everything, there, there can be a sort of joy that comes out of it. I mean, it's a sort of, you know, you're dancing on, on, on the grave. Right. Um, you, it's a kind of nihilistic, despairing laughter, but a rich laughter. It's sort of like, look, we're all suffering ignorant beasts stuck on a weird planet and we don't know why. We're just like the playthings of God knows what. Um, let's dance. You know, there's a kind of um, the happiness or the joy that comes after despair. Um, it's connected up to despair, but it's a, it's a particular response to despair. You know, it's, it's dancing on the Titanic. Mm. So all these th things we're discussing, lots of, there are different ways to think about death. C can I ask you, what do you think your culture, when I say your culture, however you define that personally, mm. um, what do you think your culture does well in relation to death? Um, what does it do well? Um, I mean, I think, I think it doesn't spin stories around death that are not true. Mm. You know, um, so it's clear-eyed um, about death. It's very, very unconsoling. I think it could be a bit more consoling. Yeah. Um, but it's it's maybe done well to resist stories of an afterlife and other things that other cultures have felt the need for because it was simply unbearable mm. to imagine anything else. Yeah, yeah, I can see how that can really stop you progressing if you just decide to create a sort of immediate happy ending. We don't need to worry about this. We yeah. perhaps don't need to look in on people who are grieving yes. because, yeah. you know, it's all right, our loved ones are, are taken care of. I yeah. can see how that can be unhelpful. Yeah. yeah, maybe it can lead to a certain kind of creativity if you're staring the facts of death in, in the face. Yeah. But... Um, but I think that, you know, we have invented probably um, a kind of mythology around medicine. I think, I think for a lot of people, there's a sort of hope that death will be solved um, and, and is perhaps in many ways already on the way out. Um, and Out of fashion. Yeah. <laughs> and, that, you know, it's all like dying used to be something they used to do in the olden days. But we don't die nowadays, do we, surely? You know, it's like, it's like tuberculosis. You don't get it now, do you? You know, and it's almost like a surprise that... Mm, Sorry, you know, and for a long time you go to the doctor and the doctor says, oh, you're fine, so, you know. And then, and then one day you go to the doctor and the guy will say, well, hmm, actually you've got three months left, you know, and, and the conversation will change. But there's enough hope around, um, you know, medicine that, that we think of it, that, that we're going to solve this one. Yeah. What um, do you think, um, if you could say what you thought we need to do, what are the ways your culture could improve its relationship to, mm. its relationship to death. What, what do we need to do or what should we do? What could mm. we do? So I think this fits into a broader thing of what's happened with the decline in religion. So I think religion's response to death overall, the story it tells about death, is totally implausible. So because it's implausible, um, we've thrown away a lot of um, you know, the bathwater, the baby with the bathwater of religion. And um, you know, the good stuff is... Um, around 
beauty, community, um, music, um, uh, ritual, um, a calendar of memorialization. Um, you know, look, it, it's like weddings, right? People get married and then they go, oh, I don't really believe in religion anymore, um, but what choice have I got? I can either go to an amazing church and listen to some amazing music and have, you know, really beautiful, dignified ceremony, or I can go to the registry office and, like, get married at a plastic desk with some plastic flooring and overhead strip lighting, and it's just, like, a bit grim, and here's some sort of words written by the government. Um, and, you know, in a way, what one would like is some of the nobility and dignity of a religious service without the religious aspect. Um, and I think people want that in weddings and I think they want that in funerals. Mm. And for all sorts of reasons, we haven't yet come up with that. So I think one of the challenges of our age is to devise a good funeral. Yeah. Um, and um, I'd like to do that. That's, I love yeah. that idea. Like, I, do you feel like there's a sort of movement happening of people being more willing to talk openly about their deepest feelings? Because I feel like that's perhaps what religion sort of gave an outlet to, is, yeah. is the deepest feelings. And I, I often find myself in situations, I, wanna, I really want to pour out my heart to someone. Mm. And I, I'm like, I can't do that yet. I've got to wait until they've had another three pints. Right. And then I can pour my heart out. <laughs> I feel like man, all of us are mm. really on some level craving this deeper connection with each other in yeah. many situations. Yeah. I, yes, I think that's right. And I think that... Um, what we need in society is always ways of channeling those desires. Mm. And, um, and that's what religion did. I mean, religion, for example, would say, right, now let's do this thing together. Now let's appreciate spring. Or now let's shake hands and introduce one another to one another. Or whatever it is. And so there was a sort of sense of um, uh, structuring of longings that might otherwise rest unattended mm. in, the kind of, in the human soul. So, so we're, yeah, we're in need of, of, of ritualization mm. um, and, and connection. Yeah. yeah, get on the case, Alan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hope there's one last thing I wanted to ask you about, yeah. and that's your living architecture yeah. project. So, yeah. um, you well, tell me a bit about it. Uh, it was a project I was heavily involved in for a decade, now no longer so heavily involved, but it involved using architects to create beautiful holiday homes that people could rent. It was the idea that really um, beautiful architecture has a role to play in kind of changing people's spirits, and, and um, most people don't get to enjoy a beautiful. Um, design um, but you know we became more creative in our later phase we employed the um, artist Grayson Perry working in a collaboration with a team of architects to build a sort of secular church really and to a mythical Essex deity um, so that, that uh, Grayson Perry invented and it's just you know I think an awful lot of creativity can be directed at the gaps that religion left behind mm. and I think both with the School of Life and Living Architecture in many ways that's what I'm interested in exploring. How can we, you know, we are now a secular, science-based world, um, and how can we import into that often rather disenchanted world some of the, you know, the beauty, the, 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 the rituals, the um, sense of structure and belonging that religions used to do really well? Mm. So um, people would know the House for London, the, the boat that oh, yeah. perched on top of the um, um, Purcell rooms, and... Um, there's a beautiful house called the Life House, mm. uh, which is a very calm, reflective house in, in, in Wales. That's right. Uh, I just wanted to finally ask you how do you how do you think a death house might might look? Mm. What, what would what would be required in a, in that kind of space? In a death house, I mean, you know, we have death houses. They're called hospices. They're places where you go 
to die. And we also have, obviously, the, the, the funeral um, home or funeral chapel. Um, and I think that all these places, I mean, like all architecture, should, um, you know, tease out the best self, the most positive self, um, the most dignified and contented self, um, and help us to be, you know, more than we would be in a, in a squalid, dispiriting, despair-inducing um, place. So it's not really for me to kind of design it as we speak, but, but, but we can, you can give certain qualities that you'd want that kind of architecture to have. That architecture should be, um, uh, you know, uplifting, noble, make you feel that you matter, and at the same time that you don't matter. Because um, I think that there are, you know, if you go into a cathedral, you're, you know, it's, it's giving you something very lovely, which is a stunning environment, but at the same time, because of its scale, it puts you in a, in a it makes you feel very small. And I think that's, that's a very useful um, sort of dichotomy to play with, the kind of small, big. Um, you're, you're very small, but within a very big and very lovely environment, rather than very small within just a sort of horrible place. So um, those would be some of the qualities of, of, of places associated with death architecturally. Okay, it's really interesting. Alan de Botan, uh, thank you so much. It's been a really interesting um, discussion and uh, on some level I find it very comforting. So thank you. Good. <laughs> Thanks thank a lot. Thank you. My name's Nigel Adams and I co-run Full Time Hobby, Tongue's record label and I've been lucky enough to work with the band for the past 15 years. My mum was diagnosed with cancer in 2007. We had the shadow of that over our family for the next five years, dimming or coming into focus with each prognosis and set of treatments. When I was younger, I did think as and when the time came for my mum to die, I just wouldn't cope. She'd been such a caring presence in my life that I felt I would quite easily just spiral without her in the world. As her prognosis got worse, it drew us all in to finally face the truth of how long we actually had with her, and we were really going to lose our mum quite soon. It, it was absolutely devastating, but at the same time it stripped away several layers from my perception and everything became sharpened and ultra real, as if everyday life was somehow a facade. My mum had decided she liked to die at home and with trepidation we'd laid out a room for her to spend her final days. I took time off from work and between myself, uh, my brother, sister and dad, we took turns to care for her. Having been quite clearly withdrawing and less communicative, uh, a brief respite came with a prescription of steroids that meant we had our mum back, lucid, and as we'd known her for a short time. We were able to spend days together as she drifted in and out of consciousness. And in doing so, we all took an active part in her care. We had many tears and felt really broken with grief, but the connection made by having been able to actively participate in our mum's voyage out of life help cope with the utter desolation and just make sense of the feelings that were really battering us. Although we'd lost our mum much too young, 
yet 70 at that point and our children were going to miss out on that deeper relationship with such a loving empathic grandma we had at least been lucky in spending those vital days with her did make me think that in the way that there is maternity and paternity leave felt like an amount of time to help those leaving this life would be such a humane way to deal with death Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Dead Club podcast. Speech to Bell is the last interview in the series and that will be available next week. If you haven't already heard them earlier on in the series, we spoke to Max Porter, Dame Sue Black, Darren Brown, Kevin Young and AC Grayling and Catherine Mannix. So make sure you go back and listen to them too. And you can subscribe to the Dead Club podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. 